This is the unseen. And I'm your host, Mike Cleland. This week I will be talking with Terry Lovelace, and he wrote the book Incident at Devil's Den, and it is subtitled A True Story, Compelling Proof of Alien Existence, Alleged U.S. Air Force Involvement, and an Alien Implant Discovered Accidentally on X-Ray. I've talked with Terry a handful of times setting up this interview here, uh, actually starting last winter, and it's only now that we finally got it together and and actually recorded the conversation. I'm going to do something that I don't usually do, and I'm going to actually read his bio. This is straight from the Amazon website. Terry Lovelace served on active duty in the United States Air Force from 1973 to 1979. He was trained as a medic EMT and drove an ambulance at Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri for his entire enlistment. He has an undergraduate degree in psychology and a Juris Doctor from Western Michigan University. He worked in private practice, mostly in civil litigation and criminal defense. He entered public service as an Assistant Attorney General for the United States Territory of American Samoa. He later retired as an Assistant Attorney General from the state of Vermont in 2012. He presently lives in Texas with his wife of 44 years. Now, I usually don't read the bio, like straight up like that, but I wanted to make the point that this is a credible person who tells an incredible story. One small point, early on in the interview, you will hear a small computer chiming noise. Uh, We managed to catch that and turned it off after the first break. This interview was recorded Tuesday, August 27th, 2019. Please enjoy. Terry, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Thank you, Mike. It's a real privilege to be here. I'm glad to join you and, and uh, talk to your audience. Thank you so much. Yes. Hey, uh, your book, I have been keeping track of the book. The book came out a little over, I guess, a year ago, or is it getting on two years now? Well, March 10th of 2018. So, Oh, just a little over a year. Almost two years. Yeah, we're working on two years. Wow. Okay. So that's not very long. So that's a, a what surprised me is right out of the gate... Your book was extremely popular. I had my own book, so I was constantly checking in on Amazon and things like that. So I could see and track the progress of your book right when it came out. And I am amazed at how popular that book is. You know, that makes two of us. I honestly got wrote the book more as a catharsis for myself with the expectation of maybe selling 100 books and uh, uh, getting my story out there and hopefully informing some people that, uh, you know, this stuff is real. And, you know, if you've had a nightmare, it may not be a nightmare. And I was I was I was shocked, uh, pleasantly shocked that, that it was so popular. It resonates with people for some reason. Something in it resonates. Yeah, it certainly touched a nerve. It certainly touched a nerve. And I'm not sure what that nerve is. You know, I, I just, you know, my hat's off to you because it's a it's a very strange little niche field, the UFO corner of the book market. And your book is very it's a. It's a very frightening book. Uh, like there's some books out there that are very love and light and kind of 
feel all angel. I was going to say angel-y, but that's not a word. Um, it feels like they're kind of channeled <laughs> from the angels or something. Yours is not that kind of book. It is not. It is not. You know, I put my email or an email address in the back in the epilogue of my book. And uh, I think last time we talked, it's been a while. I had a couple hundred responses. I just got my uh, 1,100th email from people who read the book and wanted to reach out and tell me their stories. And wow, there's some incredible stories out there. Some are unbelievable. Um, I mean, not not judgmental. I, I don't. I, I don't decide what's believable and what's not, uh, but some are incredible. And I got one the other day. It was very much very similar to an experience that you had with the water tank, and I immediately thought of you. Oh, so just like wait, let's we can jump into the depth of the interview in a second here. What was the story? Sixty uh, nine year old surgical nurse. I won't say from where. Uh, very articulate woman told me that when she and her her little sister, uh, ages uh, nine and seven respectively, were playing on Grandpa's farm uh, in a rural area, and uh, there was a uh, like a picket fence around most of the front yard, and a, about a ten foot high berm, just a mound of dirt that ran around the rest of the yard, and they could play anywhere they wanted, but they were strictly forbidden from crossing over that berm because there was a pond not far, and they were afraid the girls might drown. So the girls, they were very, uh, very good at following the rules, and they were trusted by their parents to play out in the yard and not, not wander over the berm. Well, one day they heard calliope music, and they thought, oh, cool, a circus. It must be a circus. Oh, but wait, it's over the berm. What are we going to do? What would a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old girl do? Of course they're going to go. And they climbed up on the top of this berm and they saw what she described as a carousel uh, with horses that goes around merry-go-round, some people call it. Uh, But it was three times larger than any carousel she'd ever seen. She said the horses appeared to be alive and the thing was spinning like it was out of control. And there were a million flashing lights all over it. And they sat down on the berm and watched it. And the next thing they knew, they woke up, and it was four hours later, and their parents were screaming. They had been missing for four hours, and then suddenly they are here, right here in open view. And uh, parents ran over and grabbed them and uh, took them into the house and, uh, you know, chastised them severely and uh, wondered where they were for four hours. And uh, they were already had poles dragging the pond. They were sure the girls had drowned because they would they wouldn't wouldn't return their calls. So um, the two girls sisters would not talk about it for an entire lifetime. They did not talk about it. And five years ago, when her sister was on her deathbed from cancer, uh, she was holding her hand and she said, "Do you want to talk about what happened at Grandpa's?" And from her hospital bed, she said that her sister looked shocked and said, no, absolutely not, and passed away the next day. So it's just amazing. And it's a story I've heard over and over and over again. As have I. As have I. Yes, and I've heard the carousel. I've heard um, the gazebo in the town square. Um, I, When I tell the story, like I 
visualize this as a big house. Did you ever see the movie Sleeper? It's a comedy that Woody Allen did in the early 70s. There's a house in that, and I, I visualized that house. It's sort of a flying saucer-shaped house. So anyway. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I have seen that. I do. I yeah, yeah. So, so you and I are in the same boat in a way because because of our book. Well, I guess I was doing research before the book, but um, I mean, you've been thrust into the role of well, I'm not even sure if it's researcher, but I guess just listening ear. I think just people need to be heard, and they they need to be acknowledged that these things have really happened in their lives, and they're very frightened to tell anyone except someone who's written a book like yours or mine. And and I see that as my role as uh, as someone just just an ear, someone to listen, someone to be non judgmental, uh, and I answer everyone, uh, irrespective of how uh, outlandish it might be. I answer everyone cordially and uh, um, understand that strange, strange things can happen, and it's certainly not to be to 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 judge them. And people want that. People want acknowledgement that their experience was real. Now, for the most part, they are real. I agree. I agree. And that's another thing I struggle with. Sometimes you just said it, the outlandish quality of some of these stories. Like, I feel like I'm very open-minded and sometimes I have to like grit my teeth and say like, you know, where do you, where do you draw the crazy line? You know, like, I mean, everyone's got their crazy line where like, oh, I'll go right up to that line. And then beyond that line, it's like, oh, that story is too crazy. And my sense is it's all open. It's all open. And, and I'm, I recognize my own judgmental nature at times doing this work. Same here. So your book, The Incident at Devil's Den, I am going to ask a tough thing to do. Could you just sum it up in just this first segment here? We've got about 10 minutes to go, and I'll I'll chime in if I want to ask anything. But uh, specifically the event in 1977 in Arkansas. Yes, I can sum it up real quick for you and hit the highlights. In 1977, I was active duty in the United States Air Force. I was a medic and an EMT, and I worked the night shift in an emergency room. Uh, and drove an ambulance with uh, my best friend in the world, who I refer to in my book as Toby. And uh, he was a amateur astronomer. He chose to work the night shift just so he could watch the night sky. Uh, he had taken every physics class available at the at the Extension uh, College on base, and it just aced, you know, all of them. And his goal was to go to University of Michigan uh, and get an undergraduate degree in physics, and then go on to cosmology. He's a bright kid. And uh, I worked the night shift just because I was taking evening classes and it fit my schedule best because, you know, there's no officers around unless we had an ambulance run or something. I could do my homework, do my reading, and uh, it was just convenient. So one day, um, March, April of uh, 1977, he came up to me and he says, hey, man, I got an idea. Let's go camping. And I'm like, Toby, are you nuts, man? You know? But what what will you know for camping? You know, what are you you talking about? We were both city kids. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. He grew up in Flint, Michigan. Neither of us had ever been camping in our lives. And uh, we were kind of known as the, uh, what was before the word nerds entered the uh, vocabulary. We were kind of bookish, I guess they called us. So we were kind of the two bookish guys in the... uh, in the squadron. So what do two bookish guys do when they're going to do something they've never done before? We did research, you know? So we went to the base library and uh, all I could find was a 1958 Boy Scout manual. Uh, you know, and in short, there was nothing on how to go camping. And my, my friend Toby had, it was like somebody turned the light on in his head. He's like, hey, you know what? This isn't rocket science. We buy a couple air mattresses, a cheap tent, 
We carry some water and some food and we just go. So I said, let's do it. And, uh, and we did in June of 1977. And despite the fact that there were a half a dozen beautiful campgrounds within uh, 45 minutes of Whiteman Air Force Base, we decided to drive for some reason six and a half, six plus hours south to the northeast corner, pardon me, northwest corner of Arkansas to a place called Devil's Den. Let me just interrupt a little bit. Now, in the book, that's all told very clearly, but there is a sense, and you never state it outright in the book, but there's a sense that you were being pulled there rather than just picking it as a destination. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And I, uh, I, I, I kind of tell that, it, it, you know, when we got there after this long drive, we didn't want to stay in a campground. We wanted to go someplace where we could be in the wilderness and we wanted a piece of high ground, uh, the highest ground we could find. And that made sense. I wanted to photograph eagles and my friend wanted an unobstructed view without light pollution of the night sky. But, you know, in retrospect, over these years, it sure it sure seems like Toby knew where to go. I mean, he was make a left here. Let's head this way. There was a chain across the road. And I said, oh, man, I guess we're done. And he says, no, no, no. And he hopped out of the car and the chain had just been locked on itself around like a loop and draped over this post. Now, how did he know that? But he got out and lifted the chain up and dropped it to the ground. And we, and we drove into the park, to the restricted area of the park. And we found this piece of high ground. And we, you know, the road degraded into gravel and just a trail. And we finally we came up on this uh, beautiful meadow, horseshoe-shaped. At the end, there was some big boulders and then uh, kind of a drop-off and some water. But it was gorgeous. I wanted to set up camp in the middle. And Toby was insistent that we camp on the edge of the tree line. And he usually caved when we argued, but he stuck by his guns on, on, on this issue. And we set up camp and we're sitting around the campfire. Now it's 10 o'clock at night and we've, we've eaten some burnt hot dogs and uh, we're just sitting around talking. And I recall clearly there was a lull in our conversation and this is important. And it sounds so cliche, but it's absolutely true. All the night sounds uh, of the forest, the crickets, the tree frogs, all those things were gone. I mean, it was dead quiet. Not only was it quiet, but it was unnaturally still. I mean, there wasn't a breeze. We had a nice breeze just a few minutes before. And I looked in back of me because there was a, um, a big tree. And I thought, I'm going to focus on one of these leaves. And it has to move. It has to quiver at least. And I did. And it didn't move. And that creeped me out. And I had this feeling like, am I looking at reality here? Or am I looking at a hologram? Or what am I looking at? And then I shifted my attention to my friend. And I, well, I asked him, I said, is this natural, man? He says, oh, yeah, relax. He says, you know, we've been laughing and cutting up. They'll be back. Crickets and tree frogs, they'll come back. Well, he turns his head to the left and he sees three tiny little stars sitting on the horizon. And he asked me, he says, hey, man, were those there before? And I, and I lean back and I'm looking over his right shoulder to his left side. 
at the horizon, and there are these three stars sitting on the horizon, but they're too high up in the air to have been like parking lot lights or a train or something. Um, and we didn't know what they were. And we're talking about them. And then they moved. They rotated. And what's interesting is that anxiety that I felt earlier about the crickets and the tree frogs and the unnatural sense of quiet left me. And I felt a wave of calm wash over me. Um, if you've ever gone to surgery, you know, sometimes they'll give you a, a, some medication prior to the, to the general anesthesia to, to relax you. And I felt that's what it felt like. I felt this wave of calm wash over me. And I'm watching these stars with almost disinterest. I mean, short of apathy, but an inappropriate response, absolutely. I should have been freaked out and, uh, you know, in the car trying to get back to civilization, but I didn't. I laid there and was perfectly happy to watch these things climb up into the sky. These three points of light always remained equidistant, but they grew and got larger and larger and larger. And it finally came to a halt directly over this meadow. And then I could see why Toby was so insistent that we park on the tree line, because we would have been right underneath the thing had we camped where I wanted to camp. And it stopped at about 2,500 feet, maybe 3,000 feet over our heads, and it was enormous. It was a triangle. It was a city block on each length. And we were staring at it, and I don't think there was a word exchanged between us. Nothing. And we were just mesmerized by this thing. Uh, and a light from the, from underneath the, the, this craft, there came a light. And it was a visible beam of light, like a, um, like a searchlight cutting through fog. But there was no fog. And this uh, beam of light landed in the middle of our campfire and stayed there for less than a minute and then turned off. And then immediately there came a laser beam that was dancing all over our campsite. And I recall having the feeling, this thing is scanning us. It's, it's somehow it's measuring us or, or evaluating us. And that lasted about three minutes, turned off. And then my friend says, up, shows over. And without another word, he picked up his uh, air mattress and went to the tent, threw it in and climbed in. And I followed him. And this thing is still hanging over our heads. And I threw mine in the um, tent and I jumped on top of it, laid down. And uh, I could already hear him softly snoring. And uh, I was out. And the next thing I knew were these crazy lights flashing through our tent that I thought were maybe a ranger's overhead lights. Um, and I got up to my knees and I was really in a lot of, a lot of pain. And um, I asked my, my friend is on his knees and he's got the uh, flap of his tent peeled back and he's looking out of the window, this window out of the flap of his tent. And then um, I noticed during one of these uh, flashes of light that he'd been crying and that scared me. And I, I had no idea what could move this man to tears, but I was uh, I was absolutely frightened. And um, well, four hours had passed. We did not know that at the time, but 
both of our mechanical watches had stopped at 2.40 a.m. Well, I assume a.m. Um, and Toby's looking out this tent, and I nudge him to the side, and he kind of puts his head on my shoulder, and he's sobbing. And uh, I look out, and I saw what I first took to be children, maybe 15, paired up in twos and threes, wandering around this meadow. And from underneath this giant UFO, triangular UFO, which had now descended from 2,500 feet to just 30 feet over our heads, there came another beam of white visible light about 20 feet in diameter from the underside of this thing. And these little guys would walk into it and just evaporate, just dissolve. And I said, Toby, what the hell are these kids doing out here in the middle of the night? Because I don't have my wits about me yet. And he said, Terry, man, those ain't no little kids. Don't you remember? They took us and they hurt us. And I look out again and I realize these aren't human beings. Uh, they walk with a distinctive gait. They walk like they had sore feet. Their heads were disproportionate to their bodies. They were no more than four feet tall and they were all absolutely identical. And when the last pair walked into the light and dissolved, the thing lifted off. And uh, I mean, not like a rocket, but more like a hot air balloon taking off. And it ascended higher into the sky and uh, there, were, there was a light bar in the apex of each of the three points of the triangle. And those lit up bright with white lights that traveled up and down this light bar. And I remember thinking, that's what gives the illusion of a twinkling star when it's in the sky. And we were terrified. We were so scared. We, we, we were afraid to breathe. My friend was hyperventilating. And I told me, man, you got to get a hold of your breathing. And... The thing just lifted off and we watched it to three points of light to one point of light and it was gone. And uh, and that was it. And then only later did uh, through flashbacks and memory and through um, hypnosis by the Office of Special Investigation, memories returned. And uh, those were very frightening memories about what happened inside the inside the ship. Well, and I feel like it's a little unfair of me to have asked to sort of like to sum up of such a complex story because what you just shared is just one small part of a much much larger tapestry that plays out in your book. Uh, everything else that follows, um, uh, I think that everyone needs to know what preceded everything that follows uh, because none of it makes any sense unless you know the story. Of, uh, of what we saw on that campground. And, and you know, it puzzles me to this day why there wasn't a radar return from someplace. Well, if there is, if it's, you know, not available to the public, not available by FOIA. Um, this thing was so big and so bright. I mean, it, we, granted, we were in a remote area, but that thing should have been seen by, you know, three different counties. And I just, uh, it just boggles my mind that... Uh, you know, all these people in the campground, probably three miles, four or five miles away. Certainly they should have seen all this. But I guess not. That's what we're dealing with in a sense. I mean, this is what these stories show us over and over and over again, that something mind boggling and irrational 
seems to be able to take place. Uh, it seems that just what you were saying, that you were pulled to that site, that Toby had a, let's say, an unnatural knowing of, you know, right and left on the roads and, and such to get you to that spot. It feels orchestrated for some unknown agenda. Absolutely. Hey, we have reached the end of our first 15 minutes, and we will need to take a short break. For non-members, there will be a few commercials, but for members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen. My guest is Terry Lovelace, and we are talking about his book, Incident at Devil's Den. And just before the break, he did the impossible in a way where he summed up a very complicated story in just about 10 minutes or so. And I want to ask, we talked in a private conversation a few months ago, and you described the act of letting your daughter read the first draft of your book. I did. Um, you know, I had uh, been a lawyer all my life, so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Nothing will screw up your ability to write prose more than three years of law school. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, wrote, uh, I wrote the first draft. And uh, I had 57 footnotes and uh, my daughter read it and she said, uh, uh, I don't know where this is going here, but this 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 reads like a legal brief. She says, you know what you need to do? You need to throw this away and write it from your heart, not from your head. And and I did just that. I, I threw it away. I deleted it. I started completely over from scratch and I felt like I got a much better book. Uh, and, and it is from the heart. Well, it certainly feels heartfelt. Now, another thing. So you were sharing these stories. Was that the first time you really shared this experience with your daughter when she read the book? My daughter and son knew for my sons. Gosh, our son's almost 39 now. But they knew for a lifetime that dad would have occasional screaming nightmares and never knew why. And my wife and I never shared this part of our life with them. Uh and they knew that I had an aversion to watching things on television that dealt with UFOs, um, but we never talked about the topic. And um, they were shocked. They were absolutely shocked. So that's a very powerful bit of uh, feedback, you know, right from your heart. And she's reading a story that, that was unknown to her, and then to give that feedback. I found that very touching when you told me that over the winter. Now, your book is dark in many ways, and you just went to what I will call a very light conference. You were at Contact in the Desert. And so this is, you know, this is a very love and light kind of crowd. How were you greeted with this very dark story with that crowd? You know, I wrestled with this. Um, well, I'll tell you, it's strange that you, that you nailed that because you really did nail a, uh, a conundrum that I had. And that is that you know, how to be truthful, how to tell it all, but how not to turn people off. I mean, I, I've, I've heard some people uh, come across with, uh, you know, the reptilians are eating our children and, you know, kind of selling fear or peddling fear. And I don't want that. That's not me. Um, so I chose to do it just a bit lighthearted. There were several points where it was serious and I had to and I had to portray it as serious because that's the truth. Um, but, yeah, it was a, it was a little bit hard to uh, it, it, it's a hard things don't go together. It's hard to portray something tragic in a, in a lighthearted way. 
And uh, I think the best way to do that is to be strictly factual, move through it, and move on. And that's what I tried to do. And how, how was it received? It was received very well. I, uh, I got a standing ovation. And uh, I've done a lot of public speaking. I've never had a standing ovation in my life. And uh, that was very humbling. And this was your first ever presentation, like on a stage talking about this. It was. It was. And it, it was thrilling. Well, that's good to know, because that's a... I was wondering when I heard you were, you were going to speak at Contact in the Desert, I was like, wow, that might be the that might be oil and water, that crowd in your story. Yes, you said you're, that you don't want to peddle fear. I understand that. But at the same time, you have a book that, I mean, the, the level of fear that you must have confronted in that tent, as well as a few other stories in your, in your book, the level of fear you must have confronted, I don't, it's not normal fear. It's something on a, on a different level, or, a, or a, it's, it almost needs a, a whole different dial on the dashboard to register that fear compared to the normal fear that we confront in our lives. It is indeed. It is indeed a different type of fear. I'm used to speaking to juries. And over the years, I've talked to dozens and dozens of juries, and as I talk, uh, I'm watching every juror's face for a reaction. I'm watching their body language and how they're responding to what I'm saying. And I do that intuitively. And I, during this thing, I, I, I watched my audience. And when I got to the parts that were frightening, I watched them put their hands in their, fold their hands in their lap and lean forward. And, um, I took that to mean that they were they were very interested in what I had to say. And uh, one woman was crying. And uh, I mean, not hysterically, but uh, was was crying. And uh, when I talked about the uh, the uh, alien that I had direct interaction with and uh, on board the ship. You know, afterwards, she says, my God, that must have been absolutely frightening. And I said, honestly, yes, yes, it was. And, uh, you know, I think that there are a lot of people out there that have had a similar experience and uh, they can't recall it. You know, I think that um, the human mind, I think whenever they do a screen memory or whatever they do, um, it's not a perfect science, even for them as as. Uh, High above us on the evolutionary ladder as they may be, if you mess with the human mind and you wipe something out, um, it's going to bubble up and manifest in the form of neurosis or nightmares or, or some way. It it's it's going to manifest. And uh, you know, I wonder about all the people that grapple with mental illness, uh, not as a result of any any mental defect or disease, but as a direct result of uh, having been through such a traumatic experience and then having that experience stuffed down deep into their subconscious. So it's an interesting topic for me. It's, a, it's interesting for me. I went, talked to a therapist, did a few sessions with a woman on the phone. She was wonderful. And she was a bit of an intuitive as well as a, you know, a clinician. You know, I just, you know, listed all these issues in my life. And some of them are, you know, normal, what seemingly feel like normal insecurities and inability to, to just feel connected, let's say at times. Yeah. And it just went on and on with this long list. And she just listened and listened and listened. And she said, you're, you're describing trauma. What's, what trauma have you had in your life? 
And I'm like, I don't think I've had any trauma in my life. And the, except I was, this was very early on when I was digging into my own, what would be UFO experiences. And we had a very open discussion. She was very receptive and we had, you know, basically like she framed it. She did a very good job. She wasn't leading me in any way, but you know, as unremembered trauma, like I was suffering from unremembered trauma. And I can't say whether that's true or not, but boy, I sure took it seriously. Well, I, I think she would probably know. Did she have you take an MMPI, uh, Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory Test, the three-hour test? No, I never did that test. I've never done anything like that. But it's uh, but you know, here's a this is a, I'm going to jump. Sorry, I apologize for stealing the show a little bit here. I did an audio interview years ago. It was one of the early interviews I did when I was really focused on synchronicity, and this fellow who's a clinician. He uh, he's a former Jungian analyst. Oh wow! His name is Gibbs Williams, and he he's he was a Jungian analyst. He doesn't really follow a strict Jungian protocol now. And I was talking with him, and he knew nothing about the UFO thing. I was strictly synchronicities. And then just out of the blue, he said, "Do you know who Bud Hopkins is?" And I'm like, "Uh, yes." At that point, I'd been hypnotized by Bud Hopkins, and he said, uh, "I know Bud well, and I did the tests." For Bud, I did the, you know, those tests, those to address the mental illness. Yes. Uh, or the mental health of his clients, or I guess they technically wouldn't be patients, um, his clients. And and I was like, oh, my God, this is what I talk about synchronicity, right? I mean, here's I'm talking to a guy about synchronicity and he's he says, do I know Bud Hopkins? And then he's then he says, you know, they were all sane they were all sane that was that wasn't the issue but they all were suffering from some level of stress yes that's a fascinating talk i love uh i was a psychology undergrad and i loved the Jungian everything you know especially the uh, symbolism well you're talking my language now there that's what i'm totally wrapped up in. i am not a any sort of follower of young and i and i actually i've tried to read young and i have to confess it's extremely dense and I have to fight my way through trying to read uh, some of his writings. But I can cherry pick things in there. And yes, the symbolism that shows up in this, I mean, talk about symbolism, Devil's Den. It doesn't get much more. I mean, that is as upfront as it gets. You tell a dark story that happened in Devil's Den. I, I cannot separate, like if a script writer had written that, and I was the script supervisor at the office where they were creating the X-Files episodes, I would take the script writers aside and say, hey, guys, you know, that's coming on a little strong there. Why don't you yeah. lighten it up a little bit? <laughs> hey, you know what I found out is that uh, I think I mentioned in my book, I talked to the Indian tribes, Native American tribes that share that land. It's divided. And uh, Kahino and I forget the other name. I can't and I don't want to murder the name again, but I, I tracked down a medicine woman from a little town in Arkansas, who was a tri tribal member and a um, like a shaman. And I told her I was writing a book about Devil's Den, an experience I had, and she says, it's very bad land. She says, uh, our people consider it bad land and, and we don't go there. Um, you know, it's, it's our land. She said that it's very bad land and they don't go there. So I contacted through, uh, shouldn't use the word, uh, I'll say a Michigan University, uh, talked to an archaeologist whose specialty was Neolithic people in America. And he says, you know, it's odd. That whole area that's defined as Devil's Den is absolutely absent of Neolithic artifacts of any kind. 
And he said there should be tons. He said there should be, uh, you know, uh, flint tools, uh, flint carvings, debris, charcoal remains. He says there's nothing. He says if they've combed that land and combed that land, there's nothing. And that just sent a chill down my spine because whatever is there has been there a very long time. And it acquired the name Devil's Den for some reason. Understandably, yes. That's my sense is that these myths, whether it's the owl or whether it's the name Devil's Den, have a there there's source there's a source back there somewhere. If we pull on that thread, there's a source of something. We may not know the source. All we're left with is the myth. Yes. Yes. Hey, we've reached the end of our second segment. We're at the 30-minute mark, and we will take one more break. This will be our final break. For free Dreamlanders, you'll hear a few commercials. For paying members, we'll be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and my guest is Terry Lovelace, and we are talking about his book, Incident at Devil's Den. You made a very brief reference to talking to a woman on board a craft, and I want to talk about that. That was one of the more powerful moments in your book. It comes near the end, and uh, if I remember correctly, you wake up in the middle of the night and you walk into your living room? What happened was I woke up in the middle of the night in my living room, seated in my my usual chair, and I, uh, I have never sleepwalked, not once in my entire life, and uh, I, I don't know why they chose to put me there, but they did, probably because I have a handgun in my side table. But, um, and my wife is down the hall. I could have yelled for her and I didn't. I had that strange sense of calm wash over me. I could feel it in waves wash over me. And I, first I glance at the alarm system. It's set. I glance at the cat. She's uninterested. And then, like the elephant in the room, seated directly across from me is what I, at first glance, took to be a petite Asian woman with dressed in black, uh, with black, sturdy, like nursing shoes with a high heel on it, uh, probably to give her some needed additional height. And her sleeves of her blouse were extra long to cover four long fingers that stuck out. And she had a wig on top of her head, and the wig was on kind of sideways. I, I say in the book that it's on a skew. It's, it's not properly fitted. And the reason for that is there's this bulbous back to her head. She's not a human being. Well, no, my first thought was, what the hell are you doing in my living room, lady? Who are you? And I said, or not said, I thought, I wonder if this has something to do with the thing in my knee because they discovered an implant in my knee. And uh, it's in the book. It's clearly seen on an x-ray. It looks like a computer chip above my knee. And she said, yes, it's about the implant in your knee. And, um, but she said it telepathically. And we exchanged thoughts, telepath and it felt like the most natural thing in the world. But I must say, there's a reason that humans have not evolved to use telepathy to communicate. It's not possible. Human beings cannot control their thought. You know, walk into any fourth grade class and tell them, don't think about elephants. And, you know, the four kids for the next two, two weeks are going to be thinking about nothing but elephants. So I have this strange woman seated in my living room directly across from me. She's in a non-threatening posture. And I think to myself, 
what if I have the wrong, what if I say the wrong thing mentally and, and, uh, and she gets angry. And then the next thought was, what if I think of something inappropriate? And she perceived that because she fired back and said, you can control your thoughts, Terry. You can keep some of them private. Just try. Now, I don't know if she said that just to placate me, but that relaxed me and I was able to focus better. And I said, this thing in my leg, um, you know, I want it out. And, I, you know, of course, I could never find a surgeon to do it because I, I can't get a cardiac clearance letter because of my cardiac history. They won't operate on me. And I said, how many thing? how many, when I say say, I'm, I, I'm, I'm inferring to a telepathic conversation. <laughs> and I know this is hard to believe, but uh, my thought then was next, how many of, things have, of these things have you put into people? And she said, many thousands over three generations now. And that blew me away. And I said, what's the purpose of your visit? She says, the purpose of my visit is the things that are in your leg must not fall into the hands of terrestrial scientists. And my people will not allow that to happen. Your U.S. government uh, has an interest in it, but uh, they don't they don't really care that much because the thing above your knee belongs to uh, my host. She referred to them as and uh, she used the word host uh, to mean aliens. That's a longer story that I can go into. I'm cr trying to cut to the chase here. And it's, it's, I know that. Oh, no. Tell this story completely. Tell as much as you need to say, please. And I, I just want to add the disclaimer. I apologize because it's so incredible. It's hard to believe. But I'm telling you, this, this, this actually happened. Um, and she said to me, she said, um, you know, you mustn't talk about this uh, and you mustn't write about it in your book. And. My thought was, well, why? I mean, hundreds of people, thousands of people write books every day. What makes my book, my book any different from anybody else's? And she says, you have seen things that are important both to your government and to my host, and they do not want them disclosed. Now, you don't know, you can't discern what you saw that's important from what's not important. And I thought, okay. And then I had the thought, my God, I wish she'd take those glasses off so I could see her face because I felt an immediate familiarity with this woman. And she took off her glasses and I knew her immediately. And when I was four through seven, they used to take me from my bed when I was a kid. And I begin my book with the story of what I called the monkey men who used to take me and uh, the same woman who I referred to back then as Sue. I called her Sue because she looked like a, um, um, an Asian woman that lived in our neighborhood. Uh, in the book, I referred to her as Betty because when she was in my living room with this crazy black wig on, she reminded me of Betty Flintstone from the cartoon series. Um, but I knew her. And what's more is I felt a, an immediate affection for her. I don't mean in a romantic way, but in a maternal way. And I remembered then that she used to play with me when we were kids. There were like about seven of us, and they were always the same kids. And we played in this big round room with a white dome ceiling and a gray padded floor. And she would have us. She had the, these colored 
geographic blocks. They were like squares and circles, rectangles. And she would have us assemble them in certain order and then give us big praise whenever we got it right. And if we got it wrong, she very patiently would show us, no, you want to do it like this. And, and I remembered that. And I also remembered, uh, I should say, she allowed me to remember an incident in 1987 when I was on a motorcycle ride and I came up with two hours of missing time when I found myself on a just this deserted gravel road. And um, I had I had memories of, uh, of of being there when I was four, five, six years of age. And then it was when it, when I was age seven that I saw the, the flying saucer in my backyard. Um, incidentally, Betty, as I called her or Sue, I was contacted by someone and I won't use his name. Uh, he's a medical doctor. And he's working with a group investigating this phenomenon. And he told me that this woman has been seen all over the world and they actually have fibers from her hair, from the wig. She wears a wig that's manufactured. They traced it. It's manufactured by a Chinese uh, wig factory and exported all over the world. So there's obviously there's no way to trace that, that sale. Uh, also, there's a... Uh, a UFO uh, person named Daryl Sims. And when I told Daryl about Betty, he said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got I got pictures of her right here, right here. And I almost I almost fainted. I did. I, I almost fainted. He had drawings of the same woman that I had in my living room. Oh, here, I'm going to interrupt. This is fascinating. Are you familiar with a film called... Love and Saucers. Uh, it's about a fellow named David Huggins who did paintings of a love, romantic, sexual relationship he had with a woman he called Crescent. And it was a chalk white female being with big black eyes and a kind of um, severe bob black wig. Wow. I need to watch that. You need to watch. Well, I mean, you might not. Who knows how it'll go? Yes, he's a David Huggins is a wonderfully sweet man, but the images that he has painted are very arresting. Well, we can talk about this at the end here, but I did. I apologize for interrupting. Let's get back to the story here. Yeah, yeah. So, so we had a conversation that I would guess lasted about ten minutes, and she told me that if, because uh, at the time I was considering going to an MD in Mexico or at St. Luke's in the Philippines that I happen to be familiar with. That's a long story. But I, uh, I was seriously thinking about having the thing removed because I wanted it. I wanted it out of my body and in my hand. And she warned me. She said, if you continue, the, my host, the, the aliens that implanted it in you so many years ago, will come back and retrieve their merchandise. And, and I might mention, too, that this uh, if you look in my book and you see the X-ray, uh, there's a spot on my leg, uh, just lateral and above my knee, that I was a runner for years. And every time I hit the two-mile mark in my run, there was a spot directly over that computer chip that would go completely numb. I mean, I could take a pen and outline and discern the, the clear edges of the, uh, the numb. I called it my numb spot. Uh, and that would last about 30 minutes. Making that connection, that numb spot was over that item uh, in my leg 
Uh, and the doctor said that's very common for a foreign object to be in your leg. That's called a histemic reaction. And that's your body's reaction to, he says, what I don't understand is number one, how you got this thing in your leg without there being a scar. That was a big issue. And number two, how did your body come not to reject it as a foreign body other than this systemic reaction, which was itching and numbness? So um, three weeks after Betty visited me, I woke up and I felt like I'd been hit by a truck. I felt terrible. I went to stand up and both of my legs were just so sore. And uh, I looked at my legs and I had these odd marks on the top of my leg. And I told my wife, I said, I think they came and they got that item out of my, out of my leg last night. And she said, well, you got to get an x-ray. And I said, yeah, I know I'm, I'm going to go to try to, I'm going to go try to do that right now. And the long and the short of it is it's a harder thing to do than you would think. And I, uh, it took a day or two, but I ended up uh, November 17th at a chiropractor's office. And I had uh, photocopies of my x-ray showing the object in my leg. And you don't need to be a medical person to see it. It looks like a computer chip. And I waited 45 minutes. I didn't have an appointment. And the chiropractor is very busy. He calls me and he says, what, what can I help you with? Where do you hurt? And I said, well, doctor, I want to be perfectly candid with you. Last night, I believe aliens came into my house and they took the foreign bodies from my leg. And I'm holding up these two pieces of paper that show the x-ray. And I said, I think that they came and they took these things out of my leg. And I'm trying to be absolutely honest with him as he's escorting me out the front door by the elbow. And he looks closely at the piece of paper and he stops dead in his tracks and he says, come on back. And he took me into his office and shut the door. His phone's ringing. People are knocking on the door. And he says, can I see your legs, please? And he examined my legs and saw the wounds. And I said, I want to get an x-ray because I think they took the thing out of my leg. And he said, absolutely. And he says, I'll write a uh, prescription for you to get an x-ray uh, with two caveats, that you do not use my name in your book and you do not use the name of my clinic. And he said, I'll pay for the x-ray. Just bring it back here when you get it. And I was astounded. This man clearly, clearly was an experiencer. And maybe it's no accident that I found my way to him. I got the x-ray, I looked at it first, and I'm no, you know, I'm no radiologist, I don't know what I'm looking at, but I know that there was the absence of the computer chip. So I thought, well, it's gone. And I kind of felt, I don't know, uh, instead of feeling relieved, I kind of felt disappointed for some reason. I don't know, I can't deal with that emotion. And I dropped the x-rays off in his office and he called me that evening at dinner and said, well, did you see your x-ray? I said, yeah, I looked at it. I, I saw the, the computer chip thingy is gone. And he says, yeah, but you didn't see what they left. They left you something. And I'm like, I didn't see anything. And he said, if you look next to your femur, running parallel with your femur, there are two tiny wires. These wires are about the size of human hair. And if you hold the x-ray film up to a light source, you can see them very clearly. Uh, they're two, two wires lying parallel to one another, parallel to my knee, uh, separated by less than a millimeter. Um, and I said, doctor, if these things are so evolved, how could they be dumb enough to leave two pieces of wire in me? And he says, well, 
you, you hit the nail on the head. They are that involved. And no, they wouldn't be that inept. Uh, I think they're there purposefully. He says, I think what you have in your leg now is the 2017 model of uh, what they implanted in you in, in 1977. And that was shocking to hear. And, and I believe it's true. And I still have those two wires in my leg, as well as the objects that are that are portrayed in the x-ray below my knee that look like Tic Tacs. Uh, those are still there, too. So I have a progression of x-rays showing that they were there, then showing that the um, computer chip is gone and that the two pieces of wire are still in my leg. And this medical person that came down and visited me three days, very kind. I can't use his name. I won't. He was very kind to me, and I'll honor that. Uh, but what he did was he was able to obtain from the VA uh, copies that I didn't have. They had an oblique shot of my leg, which was imperative because that oblique shot was able get gave him the ability to triangulate where this thing was in my leg and and say with certainty it was two and a half inches deep in my leg. And uh, that was a great kindness for him to do that because that was the that was the affirmation that I needed because I, part of me was wanting to, you know, dismiss all this as, well, there was a piece of uh, something in the linen at the hospital or it was uh, something laying on the x-ray table. But but no, it, it was genuinely in my body. This is all remarkable, and this all ties back to Betty. Now, in in the story, in your book, she said they would kill you. She said, your government will kill you. Well, you're still here. So I'm glad for that. Uh, and what was what was your sense when when she announced that? Stunned. Absolutely stunned. And that, I believe, was her last words to me. Now, I've talked to a lot of people who've wrestled with these issues and had similar conversations. And, and a lot of people will say, you know, I think they lie or I think they're deceptive or I think they're 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 manipulating, let's just say. Yeah. So that may or may not be true. And obviously it's, if you're here talking about it now and the book's been popular, and so I don't know, you know, I, I don't know what to think. Now, you also were confronted with four visions, two of which you talked about in the book. Yes. Uh, these are the things that you did not want me to discuss. If you, if you don't want to talk about them, we, we don't need to. But Oh, no, no, no. I'll talk about them because I disclosed them in the book. And that is that there were when we were aboard this craft, there were other human beings aboard the ship. And they were crew members. No doubt in my mind. They were crew members. And they were the only. Um, well, we knew they we knew they were crew members because they wore tan colored flight suits with orange insignias. And there were five. One was a kind of attractive Latino woman, very short. Her hair was in a ponytail. Uh, the men all had military haircuts, uh, wore combat boots, as did she. Uh, and one of the guys walked over and was doing something on a control panel. Now, we were in a situation where we were frozen. We couldn't move nothing except our eyes. So my eyes are darting all over the place, and I'm doing everything I can to try to make contact with these guys. And they they, uh, they completely ignored us. Uh, I never heard them speak, um, but they were crew members. And I think that that's a very sensitive topic. And I don't know why she would relay that to me if it's a sensitive topic, um, because she knew that I was going to write about it. Um, 
her whole visit just makes me scratch my head and wonder uh, why. But in a weird way, I felt uh, comforted, I guess. Um, I don't know. And maybe because they got the thing out of my leg now, it's not an issue. So much I don't know. The second thing that she, the second vignette, I call it, that she showed me was when I had those two hours of missing time that uh, there's more than I had room to put in the book. But um, I didn't remember what happened. Well, she shared with me what happened. And that is that I drove down this road when I was on a motorcycle ride. Uh, I never took my bike on gravel. I didn't want to get a, a chip on my paint. I love my bike. And I took my bike for some reason down this gravel road and uh, got off of it. And there was a saucer that came down, straight down, and it was uh, about, well, I don't know, 50 feet over my head. And I held my, my helmet in my hand. And I was aboard the ship. And it was just like the ship that I was inside in 1977. The interior of the saucer was bigger than the exterior. Now, none of that makes sense, but that's true. And that's, that is very commonly reported. People often see these tiny little egg-shaped things that are no larger than a VW bug, and they get inside and they're in some giant realm. Yeah, yeah. Well, this, this saucer was there to shuttle us to a craft. And the next thing I knew was I was standing next to her. We were holding hands. Um, I had my helmet in one hand. I was holding her left, my, my left hand. I was holding her right hand. And we were standing in front of what I thought. I thought it was in a giant warehouse. And I'm looking out and I thought, no, this must be a planetarium. And there was this, this beautiful view of the night sky. It was just a trillion stars. It was just incredible. And I noticed that the stars didn't twinkle. And for that reason, I thought, oh, yeah, this is a projected image. And then from the right, there came an object, a big white silver sliver of an object came from the right towards us. And I panicked and I said, my God, that's going to hit us. And Betty, again, speaking telepathically, said, we're the ones moving. That's the moon. It's stationary. We're the ones moving. And she no longer, she no more than said that, and this entire craft moved. And I, I had no sensation of movement, but I knew that it moved because I saw the night sky went away, and I saw a line of black, and it must have turned and were facing downward. And all I saw below me was black. And we traveled for a distance, and then there were specks of light here and there. And then I saw a saucer. I saw a saucer land, and it was just a speck of light, and it did this kind of zoom-zoom thing that travels. You know, it travels like uh, like your mouse travels on your computer, you know, in that herky-jerky kind of quick motion. That's the way this thing traveled. And I saw it set down, and then there were more lights and more lights, and suddenly... I'm looking at what, what looks like LAX at night, and it's the dark side of the moon, and here's this huge complex. And, you know, I guess as a lawyer, I'm thinking, boy, somebody really screwed up in zoning because, because there's, there's no, seems like there's no purpose to this. There's no streets. There are no streetlights. 
And I thought, well, maybe there are no cars, of course. And um, that's what made it look peculiar was it was just a collection of buildings without streets or streetlights. And um, some of the buildings were lit up. The buildings that were lit up, uh, there was light pouring out of the window. And it must have been incredibly bright inside, just like when I was in that ship in 1977. It was so bright inside that I had uh, arc welders burned to my eyeballs. Um, that took about two weeks uh, to heal, like a sunburn to your eyes. And I saw this giant complex. And um, I'm thinking, what do these people do here? And she says, they come here for the rocks. And um, years later, I discovered there's a thing on the moon called helium-3 that can be used somehow for some cold fusion or something. Uh, but she said they come here for the rocks. So that's my assumption. I have nothing to base that on. And I said, are there human beings here? And her answer shocked me. She said, yes. She said, some choose to stay here for a lifetime and complete their work. And uh, I was just blown away by this image. And um, there were a couple other things that I that I won't go into. But... And I remember that in this in this story, it was, we felt like those were personal issues, and and uh, I understand that as far as not sharing that that aspect. Now, let's take a couple steps back. Um, you've told us this is what you've shared in less than an hour is a small sliver of your book. Uh, a lot more happened in the book. True. What do you think it all means? What what's the What's the why of it? You know, the, um, the unnamed medical doctor that, I came, that came to see me who was so kind said to me that there are, there are people that are known as targeted individuals. We don't know why. We don't know how they're chosen. And they seem to follow familial lines. Um, Yvonne Smith is just now writing a book about the connection between family members and uh, abduction. And... Um, you know, my, my own sister, who's 80-some years old, refuses to talk to me about it, refuses to read my book. And um, the only thing that she said to me, the only thing that she would say was, uh, I regret that I wasn't able to help you when the lights came in the window and they took you and, uh, and you weren't in the house anymore. Wow. And that's the only conversation we've ever had. And it seems like regretfully that there is kind of a schism or a chasm between us in our relationship that wasn't there before that. And I, and in, in that way, that's the only regret that I have in regard to publishing the book, but it needs to be said. We talked about this earlier. There are some very dark, disturbing segments of your book. It is not an easy read in those, in those segments. Well, how would, is your book a negative book or a positive book? I think that it's negative. It's negative in that it forces us to open our eyes and realize that we're not the alpha. You know, we're not at the top anymore. Uh, we're nowhere near. And that's a humbling experience and a hard pill to swallow. But it's the truth. Well, that doesn't make it negative if it's the truth. Well, no, but the, the, the truth is hard to take. You know, 
for for so many people, and I think there are so many people out there that there there, there is a medical doctor, and I won't use his name, who uh, uh, not the other medical doctor, this medical doctor, who uh, speaks publicly often about how uh, the uh, aliens are actually our benefactors, and they've been uh, nursing us uh, through eons of evolution for thousands of years. And I asked him, I said, doctor, if that's true, what you just said, that they're benevolent, I have two, two bones of contention. Number one, it seems like everything that they give us is something that can be weaponized uh, rather than used for the benefit of mankind. And I said, number two, if they were really, truly concerned with our benefit, why couldn't they have pulled aside a, uh, a person of medicine three centuries ago, a respected academic, and told them, hey, guys, wash your hands before surgery. Instead of losing 70% of your patients, you'll suddenly save 70% of your patients. If they were interested in our future, why didn't they do that? And that put a whole negative spin on the conversation, which is why I won't use his name. <clears throat> but he has a pretty big following. And uh, I, I just I think everyone knows who you're talking about. Who's Anyone who's well-versed in this show knows who you're talking about. But keep going. So uh, that kind of changed the uh, tone and tenor of our conversation. And um, it left me with the feeling that, um, oh, I don't know, you know, there's some reason why he uh, is is portraying them in such a positive light. And, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe he gets a paycheck. I don't know. Uh, maybe that's uh, part of a plan to keep the public, uh, um, you know, from being uh, f afraid. But... Um, I find it very curious. Well, it's, I'm, I'm, well, I tell you what I want. Here's what I want. I want all these experiences. I want all these stories to sort of play out as something benevolent. In my, the stuff, the owl research, when you just focus on the owl stuff and you just wrestle with those stories and the letters I've been getting, the majority, the vast majority is very positive. But what, what I'm, I'm, I don't want to do is ignore these darker aspects. I want to make sure that these are on the table as part of the overall debate. Yes. And and I know there's individuals out there who want to brush them aside and and I mean denial and ignoring key aspects of a of a challenging subject is human nature. I think we I think I we I'm sure I do it on some unconscious level a lot, but I don't want to. I want to make sure that these more challenging stories are are allowed to be discussed in a thoughtful way. Couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. Uh, and, you know, and I think that there's an oversimplistic view of all this where they think, well, there's there, there's just one race of aliens and and uh, that's who we're talking about here. And there may very well be. And I hope there is a benevolent race of aliens out there concerned with our with our well-being. But I also think that um, that there there are others. And, you know, the, the people that, that abducted me over the years, I've kind of. Uh, mellowed a little bit and that is you know they, they could have killed us and they didn't they let us live and um you know albeit hurt but they let us live and i wonder you know i wish i could have a conversation with the big insectoid thing that was hurting me so badly i'd like to sit down with them and and uh, if they if they drink have a have a beer with them or, or a cup of coffee or something and sit down with them in a relaxed atmosphere and you know i think I think if I did that, he would say to me, oh, no, no hard feelings, man, just doing my job. 
I, I get this vibe. That's what he would say to me. Now, I don't know if that's, you know, Stockholm syndrome or, or, or what, but uh, I, I, I get the idea that they weren't 100 percent malevolent, uh, even though they hurt me. They weren't. Uh, I don't think hurting me was the purpose of the exercise. And what have, well, you're at a place now where you're at the receiving end of these letters. You're talking to people. You're corresponding with folks. You're going to conferences. What do you see on the horizon? You know, I, in the short period that I've been involved doing this, I, I've seen, I think, a change in, um, in people's attitudes. I see more of an open-mindedness. I see much less of a giggle factor. Um, the people that I talk to, that are the, especially the ones that are educated, uh, you know, like like the surgical nurse that wrote to me about the carousel, uh, you know, I, I I don't believe she's pulling my leg. I think she I think she's absolutely truthful. And uh, you know, a lot of people, lots of people that wrote to me said, you know, something about your book jogged my memory. And, you know, I think I remember such and such and such. And then uh, hopefully, hopefully we're going to have uh, an awakening. I mean, it's it's we're going to have to accept the fact that we're not the alpha. And that's going to be hard to take. I think that's going to be a big issue. And I am at peace with that, uh, that we're not the top of the food chain. For me, I have no ego invested in that aspect of it. And my sense is... This awakening, they have an agenda. This is my sense. They have an agenda, and they are very patient. We are on their timetable. They are not on our timetable. So <laughs> whatever's happening, they it may take a 100 years for this to roll out or more. Yes. I don't think it's going to happen next week. Let me put it that way. But I know a lot of people in this field who are very impatient for some sort of disclosure. And my sense is they not us, control that timetable. Absolutely well said. Very well said. Yeah. Hey, so you are a very credible person who is telling a very incredible story. I mean, you talked about, well, you were presented with a vision, so who knows whether this is flawlessly true or not, but you were presented with a vision. I mean, it's to see a giant moon base staffed with humans on the dark side of the moon that is that's that's there's a there's a crazy line in the sand boy that's that's i'm right up against the, that line when you shared that story i don't doubt that's the what you saw but i will say this again you are a very credible person telling an incredible story and i think your book is very valuable so thank you for writing it thank you very much i appreciate that i appreciate your time and it's it's always good to talk to you Thank you so much. Let's try to do this again, and we'll follow up and do another interview at some point. Real good, real good. Thank you. Uh, thank you. This is Mike, and I am chiming in after the editing process. You know what I've done? And I've actually done this a handful of times. I forgot to do the thing that a podcaster is supposed to do at the end of a talk. I'm supposed to ask the question, and Terry... How do people get in touch with you? I forgot to do that, so I'm going to fill that in right now. If you need to contact Terry or you want to find out what he's been up to, you can find him easily enough 
at terrylovelace.com. And Terry is spelled T-E-R-R-Y. His book is easily found on Amazon. There is a Kindle and an audiobook version that he read himself, and I give him a lot of credit. Any author who reads an audiobook, I tip my hat to you. And before I say goodbye, I would like to thank Lauren Cutts for the intro and outro music, and I would also like to thank Andrea Villiers on the gong. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now. <laughs>